Hey, this is BT Wolf and you're listening to Orange Juice for the Ears on DubLab. And today it's my immense pleasure to be joined by the effortlessly lovely and luminous force that is Leslie Ann Warren. Golden Globe winning and Oscar Emmy nominated stage and screen actress, singer and dancer. Leslie, thank you so much for being here with us today. Oh, that's such a beautiful introduction. Thank you. And I haven't even finished, so... Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) From her Broadway debut, age 15, to her timeless portrayal of the title role in Rodgers and Hammerstein's production of Cinderella, to her electrifying cult classics such as Clue and Victor Victoria, Leslie has dominated the entertainment industry with her genius, heart and artistry. And how many people get to say that Walt Disney himself cast them in their first film? With way too many TV shows, films, stage productions, awards and accolades to count or begin to name here, I will just say... Leslie, you met one of my heroes, Kermit the Frog. What was that like? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. I loved doing the Muppets. I loved it so much. Um, I got to sing and to dance. I mean, it was really magical. And I think, you know, my my sort of, I don't know what that is about me, but my willingness to jump in and see those Muppets as real, you know, allowed me to interact with them in a very, very real and authentic way. So I had a ball. There are very few beings I'm really a fan of. And yeah, Jim Henson and everything that he's created (laughs) and Kermit, especially. That is my screensaver. So um, (laughs) that's hysterical, really? Yep. (laughs) Oh, that's great. That's so great. So I always start the show just by, you know, saying how the wonderful person that's joining uh, and I connected. And obviously, with you, a incredibly special person uh, connected us, um, the incomparable Allie Willis. Um, and we, we met on what was um, or would be her last birthday, which still feels completely unreal. I know. I know. I know. It's, um, she was my best friend for many, 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 many years. And um, 40 something and she was a force to be reckoned with and there will never be anybody like her I believe to grace this crazy planet she was unique in every way brilliant and visionary and fun and soulful beyond compare and you know I remember when she called me and she said you know why I want you to come to this my little birthday dinner and inviting two friends and I I just uh, know you're going to get along and it was you and Nick and Ron and I and we did. <laughs> it was perfect. It was perfect. Just mm-hmm. would have loved to have met and then, you know, I guess for us all to continue hanging out together. But that aside, um, how have you been, Leslie, during lockdown? How have you found this now, I guess, coming up to two-year period? It's hard. I mean, it's been very hard. You know, I've struggled with depression and I'm never depressed. I don't get depressed. I have I have grief or I have fear or anxiety, but I don't generally get depressed. It's not my nature. And I found a couple of days in the last week, I just felt depressed and I don't like that feeling and I'm I'm not feeling that today and I'm grateful for that. But it's very hard to be so disconnected from people. I just saw a movie, Ron and I just saw this movie. It's the new George Clooney directed movie with Ben Affleck. But the little boy in the movie at one point says to his mom, because the father left and he says to his mom, 
because they move into the granddad's house and there's lots of activity and lots of people and, and the mother doesn't want to be there. But the little boy comes to the mom and says, I love people, mom. And that's me. I love to be around people. I like to connect. I was born in New York, Manhattan, and I lived there my whole life until I came out here to, to work. And I'm used to hundreds of people on the street. And so this sort of forced isolation and the constant dread and constant anxiety and has been very hard for me. I really appreciate that. Sometimes even it's just the one-on-one, you know, connections, being able to go and have a tea with someone, not worrying about it and really feeling like you can, you've got that space for magic and spontaneity and unexpected things to happen and to bump into people. And, you know, a lot of the time it's even, it can also just be that. But I am interested in you saying that about uh, loving being around people because, and I'm going to ask you about it a bit more later on, but I have read somewhere that you have described yourself as being quite shy. It's an interesting sort of dual sort of part of my personality because I, I have shyness in certain situations and then I don't in others. And I must say that as I've gotten older and older and older, Um, I don't feel that shyness the way I did when I was younger. I think it's because I don't, I'm not afraid anymore so much of what people might think of me or how they might be judging me or what I'm supposed to be like. I'm much more comfortable, you know, this is sort of a cliche, but I am much more comfortable in my own skin as I've gotten older. And so that probably has dissipated quite a lot. So To move on to the subject of this show, um, it's called Orange Juice for the Ears. It's taken from a line by neurologist Oliver Sacks about the power of music and how deep that really goes. And the line is, music can lift us out of a depression or move us to tears. It is a remedy, a tonic, an orange juice for the ear. And I I just want to know, Leslie, what does that quote mean to you? Well, first of all, I love it. It's delightful and true. You know, it's interesting, Ron and I joke a lot because I'm so impacted by music. And I also walk around with my feelings fully, pretty much fully expressed. (laughs) So I'm not somebody who uses music to make me cry. I can cry at any point during the day at any time. So (laughs) we laugh because... You know, he'll play music and I'll be like, too sad, too sad. And he'll go, no, I need to hear this to feel my feelings. And that's not my truth at all. So I have to, you know, I actually walk gingerly with certain kinds of music in terms of the affect it's going to have on me. I love so much. I love all music, you know, pretty much, much music, let me say, but, um, I would say that I use it more to lift my spirits when I need to than to help me to access my my emotional reaction to something. I don't need it. And what else is a tonic in your life? Movement. You know, I was a dancer. Movement. You know, just plain movement, whether it's walking outside at this point, you know, because there's so little we can do, or putting on music and dancing, which I still do. And I got to see you dance quite recently, which I loved. Yes, you did. That's my pole dancing version. Uh, I have a very strong spiritual life, and that's something that's atomic for me. And reaching out. I'm a very kind of loyal friend. I keep connections going. I, they're important to me. It gives me a lot of solace watching TCM 
that's the Turner Classic Movie Channel. Nothing makes me happier. Well, I shouldn't say nothing, but it makes me so happy to see those old movies. It just makes me so happy. I want to be in them. I want to be there. I want to live that life that they all seem to be living on the screen. It really makes me happy. And is there any particular movie that, you know, before we go into the first song that imprinted on you, was there any first film that imprinted on you? Mm, Yeah, I think the very first film that I have a strong connection to and memory of was a movie called Lily with Leslie Caron. And it was about a little girl, young girl. I mean, not little girl. She was probably 18 or 17. And she joins the circus and falls in love with the puppets. And the puppeteer is in love with her, but she doesn't know that. She only engages with the puppets. And it's this incredibly romantic love story that ultimately, of course, turns out the way it should. His identity is revealed in the end, and they are in love. And Leslie Carroll was one of my favorite screen actress-dancer people anyway. So I don't even know how many times I saw it. 10, 11 times. How old were you? I want to say around nine, something like that. Maybe younger, I'm not sure. I mean, I saw other movies when I was younger, but that one just held me. I like how it's Leslie and the Puppets, and we open this show with Leslie and the Muppets. So That's absolutely right, and the way that she was with the Puppets is exactly how I was with the Muppets. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. And what was the first song that imprinted on you, Leslie? It's a song that my mother sang to my brother. My mom was a singer. She was a fabulous torch singer, and she was the first white woman to be asked to sing with Camp Basie, Camp Basie's band. And um, she also sang in New York at the Copacabana, and there was an awning on the Copa that said Manhattan's newest dream girl, and that was my mother. And I have a picture of her in front of it, which is so fabulous. But she used to sing to my brother, and, you know, it's really interesting to me. (laughs) It's really interesting that I said that before about how I don't go to music to make me feel my sad feelings. I feel them anyway. Well, my mom, I didn't want her to sing to me because it made me sad. And my dad, who really couldn't, he sang off key, I wanted him to sing to me all the time. So my mom would sing the song to my brother, and it was called Little Man, You're Crying. And I would stand outside his room and listen to her sing that to him. And it it made me cry. But it was also so special that they had that that time together. Perfect. So now we're going to take a listen to Little Man, You've Had a Busy Day by Bing Crosby. Little man, you're crying. I know why you're blue. Someone took your kitty car away. Better go to sleep now, little man, you have. A busy day. And that was Little Man You've Had a Busy Day by Bing Crosby, and that was the song that Leslie Ann Warren chose as the first track that imprinted on her. Um, and you were describing how, you know, your your mother, this wonderful, beloved torch singer, would sing that song to your brother. And were you standing outside? You know, were you sort of listening in? And Yes, I was listening in outside the door. You said that you didn't want your mom to sing to you. You wanted your father. Why do you think that was in the sense of, did you not like getting upset? Were those emotions something you weren't so comfortable with when you were younger? I... It was too much, it was too much. 
both my parents, I love them beyond. My connection with my mom was so intense and it just felt like if she sang to me, I would be engulfed. I would be lost in not in a, not in a great way. It wasn't soothing to me. It was too much feeling for me. Yeah, I think it was just too much feeling for me at that point in my life. Mm. But seeing that expression of love between your mom and your brother. Yes, it was once removed and I was able to take it in in a different way. Wow. That says a lot. It's beautiful. So you were born in New York, as you mentioned, and grew up in Manhattan. What was that like? What was home life, early home life like for you? First of all, I loved that I was born in New York and I loved that I lived there until I was 18. There were many children in my building. We lived at 68th in Central Park West. And what turned out to be my best girlfriend, lived, she lived right around the corner. And we'd all be outside playing all the time. You know, it was totally safe. At least we thought it was. And we would dress up at Halloween and go trick-or-treating in all the apartment buildings. And it just seemed like such a... Um, a safe environment. My parents took me to see The King and I when I was three and a half on Broadway. Wow. And yeah. And so I was inculcated with Broadway theater from three and a half on. And I came home from that show and there was a man that lived in the building who was part of a dance partnership duo. And he would, he was friends with my parents and he, he came over and he said, well, show me what you learned today from the show. And I started doing that that head, I don't know what to call it, but the Siamese children do in the show and the king and I. And he looked at my mom and he said, you need to give her dance lessons. And I was so in love with the theater from then, from then on. And my parents took me to lots of shows from that point on in my life. So early life in New York, and then I started ballet class when I was six years old, was filled with theater and ballet and the performing arts. And I was... That's all I wanted. That's all I wanted to do. Well, and I imagine, you know, with your mother as this incredible singer, you know, obviously I don't know so much about your father yet, but my first assumption was, well, of course, there's going to be a lot of music in the house. But if Broadway and dance and all of that, it was so much more of the whole performance, that whole performance art that you were being immersed in, it sounds like. Um, was that something you shared with your mother? I mean, was that something you, you both really had? My mom gave up singing when, when I was born. She didn't really want to continue as a singer. She wanted to be a homemaker and a mom. And my grandmother was, I think, the one that really pushed her. My grandmother lived around the block. She lived at the Hotel Ansonia in New York. She would be at our house every day with my granddad. And I think she would have liked for my mom to continue, but my mom really didn't want to. And so she was singing all the time in the house. The songs from the 40s were on the record player all the time. But I was leaning towards dancing. That was my thing. I was gravitating absolutely towards dancing. Dancer in the living room at, you know, five years old. And my parents had home movies of me at five dancing in the living room, actually six probably. And I look like, I'm not kidding, I look like, I mean, the technique, of course, is that of a six-year-old, but I look like I'm aching to perform Giselle. I mean, it's just like the seriousness that I had about it was just really impressive. Um, really impressive. Yeah. How else were you like as a kid? Because, you know, we talked a bit about the shyness. Was that something you experienced when you were growing up? Were you shy? You know, what were you like? Yes, I was shy. I was somewhat shy, but I was also stubborn and willful. I remember in ballet class when I was six years old and seven years old, I was really one of the 
protégés of the ballet class, and I was chosen to perform in the Nutcracker as a child. And if I didn't get something right in the class, I would cross my arms across my chest and walk to the back of the room at six and, you know, refuse to do it. <laughs> so I had this, like, perfectionism and self-criticism from early, early, early on. Nobody did that to me. That was me. And where do you think that came from? You know, I've always said that there are destinies, and I think I was destined to do what I do. I do. I mean, I've worked tremendously hard at it my whole life, but I also think it was my destiny. There was nothing else for me to do. And I just think I had an internal ideal of what I knew it should be. And if I didn't achieve that quickly, I didn't want to play. It was all or nothing with Leslie. Yes. <laughs> yes. Wonderful. And so with that all in mind, um, such a vivid portrait painted of your early life and what an incredible character and obviously talent you were from such a young age. What was the first album that really shaped who you are and had a major impact? Because I grew up in New York and I went to very, very integrated schools, I was very impacted by R&B and soul music, if you will, and, you know, that whole world of music because it was around me all the time. And the first person, first album, I would say, that really just... I listened to it over and over and over and over and over, was Laura Nero's Eli's Coming. Anything Laura Nero did was genius as far as I'm concerned. But that album, for some reason, I just kept listening to over and over and over. And um, she was only a few years older than I was. She was probably 19. I mean, she was a brilliant artist, maybe 20. Very unique, soulful voice and sound and capability and writer beyond. Wonderful. So now we're going to take a listen to Eli's Coming from the record Eli and the 13th Confession by Laura Nero. Eli's Coming that was Eli's Coming from the album Eli and the 13th Confession by Laura Nero. And that was the record that Leslie chose as the first album that really impacted on her. How did that come into your hands? You know, I don't honestly remember. I feel like I was probably made aware of it, of her on the radio. You know, I went to see her in a concert at that time, and I just couldn't believe what I was seeing and hearing. You know, I also was listening at 16 to Barbara Streisand, who also was just a few years older than me. And I had the same sort of, I can't believe someone has that gigantic range and talent and artistry. But Laura Nero spoke to me also on a deep sort of rhythmic level as well. I remember when I was 14 and I had studied ballet from the time I was six. When I was 14, I started wanting to branch out to other forms of dancing. And I decided to take this jazz class, an African jazz class. And I was really great at it. And where that knowing of that movement and that particular kind of rhythm in my body, how did I know? Where did it come from? I have no idea. 
So it was the same sort of thing with Laura Nero. She had such a mastery of not just genius writing, but also this deep rhythm that spoke to me. Well, now that I've seen you dance, I think you could dance to anything, Leslie, really. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm not surprised. Well, thank you. And was there, is there something particular about this, this song? Is there anything you know, special to you about this song or the, the album as a whole? The thing that appealed to me the most about that particular song, although every single song on the album, the changes that she goes through melodically, vocally, rhythmically are astounding to me. Yeah, well, that's something. That is something yeah, yeah. not easy to do. And I'm sure you can guess who also chose Laura Nero. Who, Allie? <laughs> yeah. You were kidding. No. <laughs> we never talked about that. She chose it as the record she wanted to pass on to the next generation. Oh, my God. I'm like, oh, I'm in complete shock. I thought you two must have talked about no, it. No, I don't think we ever talked about that. Wow. 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 Well, there you go. Perfect. Right when I was talking just now, I was thinking, who else does that? Allie. I mean, when she wrote that last song in Color Purple that Celie sings, I can't remember the name of it, but it changes like that. It goes through so many changes emotionally and vocally and rhythmically and wow. I think she's applauding your choice right now. Yeah, she's smiling, for sure. Oh, my God. I can't believe that, Allie. Okay. All right. So you entered the actor's studio um, at the age of 17 under Lee Strasberg, reputedly the youngest applicant ever to be accepted. How did that come about? And were you still practicing ballet at that time? No, I had moved more into musical theatre. I was studying singing and dancing, but more musical theater dancing and jazz dancing. Because the truth is, if you're not going to continue with ballet, strictly ballet, you can't. You can't sort of play at ballet. You either have to be doing it or not doing it because it's so demanding. It's like being an Olympic athlete, for sure. And what made you decide to, you know, make that transition? When I was 14, I had a friend, Leda Edmonds, her name was. She was in Bye Bye Birdie on Broadway. And so she would invite me to come and stand in the wings and watch, you know, the second act or whatever. And I would watch this show many times. And there were all these young girls, because Leda was maybe a year older than me, and that's all. And I thought, I want to do that. I can do that. So there was a national touring company audition that was being held by Garrett Champion, the original choreographer, and his wife, Marge. And I didn't tell my parents, and I decided to go to it. It was an open call. So I made up a name for myself because I didn't want my parents to find out. And, you know, you're sitting in a basement, just like in the movies, with, you know, a number. And they call you up in groups of 12. And after, you know, 500 people audition, it was whittled down and whittled down. Anyway, I got it. And I was so ecstatic. And I went home and my parents told me I couldn't do it, that I had to finish high school. And I was out of my mind. I hysterical, crying, hysterical. I was convinced my career was over. But from that moment on, I threw myself into that world. And so by the time I was 16, because I had skipped a grade, I went from seventh to ninth grade. So I graduated when I was 16 and a half. And I was in an acting class. And one of the actors in the class asked me if I'd like to audition with him, if I would help him in the audition for the actor's studio. And I didn't know what the actor's studio was. And so I said, yeah, sure, you know. And so we picked a scene, and it was from a play that was off-Broadway at the time with Barbara Harris. 
and we did it. Then you get through the first auditions, and then you have to do a second audition for Lee Strasberg. And we got through the first, and then we did the second, and he did not get in, and I was asked to come in. And I had told him I was 18 because you're not allowed. You had to be 18 to audition. So, so I had told him I was, and I got in. And then I started studying with Lee and, and took his private classes as well. And Sharon Tate was in class with me, and I was in class with Al Pacino and Shelley Winters and Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward was Sally Field. Faith Underway was unbelievable. Wow. Unbelievable. And so then your first role on Broadway, that was 110 in the Shade. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. Yes. Where you played, as you described, the town floozy. Yes. Well, the town flirt. She was young. So I would say the town flirt. She was a flirt. She wasn't really a floozy. How did you end up auditioning for Rogers and Hammerstein's Cinderella? How did that come about? And I know it was both bitter, well, initially bitter, and then it was sweet. So I was in the show, and the director of Cinderella, Charles Dubin, had seen the show. And he contacted my manager at the time and said, you know, we'd like to have her audition. And so I went to my first audition and I was so intimidated and terrified because it was Richard Rogers. And I, as I said, I was a complete musical theater fanatic at that point. I was too scared. I was just too scared. And I did a very terrible audition. And, you know, they all said, you know, no, thank you, whatever, except for the director who had seen me on Broadway and knew what I could do. And so he said, you know, please just give her another chance. She's only 18. She was scared to death, you know. And so the next time they brought me back, and in the meantime, they're auditioning every young girl on the planet. You know, everybody's auditioning. So this was several, I don't know, maybe a month later or whatever. They brought me back. And this time it was at Richard Rogers' apartment with the director, Charles Dillard, and the musical director, Johnny Green, and the choreographer, Eugene Loring. And he shooed everybody out of the room. Mr. Rogers shooed everybody out of the room. And he asked me to sit down next to him at the pian- on the piano bench. And he started to play My Funny Valentine and had me sing each couple of sentences after him. And I got it. I got it from that. Yeah, it was, ama- it was amazing. Amazing. And it was interesting because Jack Jones, who was a very famous singer at the time, a blues nightclub-y singer-type guy, a jazz singer, I'd say. He was my first Prince Charming, and we would be in rehearsal, and he would do all these riffs on this on the music, you know, and Richard Rogers didn't want any of that. He wanted it to be sung exactly as he had written it, exactly, and so he was replaced. Stuart Taman became my prince. Wow. What an yeah. incredible memory and moment and oh, yeah. song. I mean, that's got to be the perfect song to have that experience with. I know. I know. And I have all these incredible pictures of him on set with me, teaching me what he wanted with the music. And he was there every second. And it was amazing, amazing experience. You know, obviously one of the highlights of my life. When you said that you really connected with the character of Cinderella because of her sense of hopefulness and that and you really, really believed it, you know, you really believed that sort of wide-eyed innocence. Um, how does it feel to have touched so many hearts and minds with that role and performance. You know, it's it's an unbelievable honor and blessing. And I know there are no words to really capture what it feels like. I mean, to this day, I get so much response from people, young people, old people, all kinds of people. And I read something just the other day that somebody had written in a post 
clearly a gay man. He identified as such. But he talked about how so many gay men identify with Cinderella because she's so victimized and so so much of an outcast. And in the end, becomes who she was meant to be. And I think that's why it struck such a chord with people and continues to do so, you know, because that that feeling of not being enough, let's say, or not being chosen or not being special or whatever it is. And then through hope and impossible things are happening every day, which is the line from the song, you know, she finds her her place. And I think that's kind of a universal theme for people. Mm. Well, and also from my perspective, I think your your naturalness, there isn't a an ounce of artifice about it. And I think for a role like that, for a character like that, that real genuine heart, it's so palpable. I agree. I think that's true. And I think that I understood her and it wasn't a fairy tale for me. <laughs> you know, it was a real girl who was lonely and sad and cast out and you know all those feelings so tell me about then being cast in your first film by the man of imagination himself and that would be his last film yes that was his last film although we of course didn't know it at the time but i was still in new york and i was brought out to california to test for the happiest millionaire which was this big sprawling musical that walt disney was doing and they put me up at the Beverly Hills Hotel because I didn't drive. And they picked me up every morning and they brought me to the studio for about two weeks. And there were hair tests and makeup tests and costume fittings. And I had to learn some of the songs and learn some of the choreography and learn some of the scenes. I mean, it was a major, major, major screen test. And it's funny. I mean, I, I don't remember thinking, oh, I've got to get this, I've got to get it. Nothing like that. All I thought about was, I've got to do this kind of like I was when I was six. I've got to do this so perfectly. I've got to really do this perfectly correctly. I've got to learn everything. And I've got to, you know, I was very, very driven to always be as best as I could possibly, possibly be. And then I, you know, I got it. And then I came out to California and um, it was a long shoot. It was over three months. And they got me an apartment. They got me driving lessons, you know. Yeah. And my life began out here. And what was it like to be part of that old studio system? I loved it. I loved it. I was also under contract at the same time to Robert Evans at Paramount. But I was working at Disney. So there was a better place to work than Disney. It was the most loving, civilized, gentle you know, it was Mickey Mouse Lane and Daffy Duck Drive. I mean, it was really all of that for real. And there was so much care and so much, oh, just, just so much care, you know, taken into every decision that was made. And I remember my first costume fitting, really. It was at a place called Western Costumes, which is no longer. But it was this big, huge place on Melrose Avenue. And they had fitters and costumers and seamstresses. It was this huge place with tons of activity and Natalie Wood was there and the people were making movies and um, that was very exciting to me and there was this big room where the actor or actress got dressed well showed the um, producers and the director the costumes then there was another room where the actress got dressed with the costumer and the designer and you know all of this stuff and then you came out and there's all chandeliers and really elegant and then Walt Disney was sitting there with you know the director and some other producers and you know he had to okay every single bow on in my hair he was very much hands-on with everything every choice you felt so protected by the studio system at that time I'm sure it was different 
years earlier for people who were hired as contract players and all of that, but that's not how I came into it. So I didn't have that experience. And for me, it was just thrilling, really. When that feeling where you really feel like everyone is working with you to get the very best, you know, out yes. of you, out of the, yes. out of all the elements. Yes. And we were all, you couldn't have asked for a more spectacular cast to walk into. Greer Garson played my mother and Fred McMurray played my father and Geraldine Page played John Davidson's mother and Tommy Steele was the butler and Gladys Cooper. I mean, these were iconic, legendary people. And the bar was extremely high. The ballet bar was very high, Leslie. The ballet bar was very high. (laughs) (laughs) Was there anything in that period that you learned that stayed with you the rest of your life? I'm sure there was a lot, but was there any one thing that really stands out? You know, I can remember in one of the scenes we were doing this sort of Irish jig and um, I was tired. I was tired. And I remember saying inside of my head, no, you don't get to be tired now. This is your opportunity. Every single time you need to give it a thousand percent. And I remember that. I remember hearing myself say that to myself and hearing it and feeling it and going out and doing it, you know, again and again and again and again. I still have that. I still have that sensibility. I don't think it came from being there, but it, I remember feeling it so profoundly at that time. This was my first movie. Moving on from that to a later film of yours, because actually of that tenacity and spirit, you know, you're not just going to do this one thing, you're going to excel above and beyond. I'm talking about Victor Victoria in 1982. Why was Norma such a key role for you? And how did you make it specifically what it was, which is one of the most standout parts of the film, evolving it from a much more everyday part into a character that had its own song and dance written for it? Well, I went and met Blake Edwards, the director, and we had a wonderful fun talk for about 20 minutes. And he offered me this role. I hadn't read it. And when I went home and read it, she had none of the characteristics. She was not blonde. She didn't have an accent. She didn't have a song and dance number. <laughs> none of that was in the, in the movie. And I sort of sat with it for a day, and I thought, God, wouldn't it be great if she grew up in New York, lived in a family of 12, had to always yell to be heard, would go after school to, you're too young, but to Woolworths, which was like a five and dime, and work there and sit at the counter and read movie magazines and want to copy Jean Harlow's makeup, which is what I did in the movie. So I kind of came up with all these ideas for her and tried to call Blake the next day, but he had left for London already. And so I spoke to his producer, Tony Adams, and Tony, I told him my ideas and Tony relayed them to Blake and then came back and said, yes, Blake loves them and is sending his costume designer and his hairdresser to your house. And my makeup artist was designing the makeup outline for them. So they came to my house and we sat on my bed in my bedroom and we kind of concocted. And then I worked with my coach. I have a wonderful, wonderful acting coach. Her name is Norena Abukair. And she is brilliant and great and fun. And we came up with this whole history for, for this character so that when I got there and every scene that I was in, there's a lot of improvisation because Blake realized that I could do it and loved it. And so he would let me do it. And I had such a firm grasp on who Norma was that I could fly with her wherever we went. And one day in Davies, um, Blake leaned over to me and he said, do you still sing? And I said, I do. And he said, do you still dance? And I said, yes, I do. And he said, well, I want to see more of Norma. 
So he flew in Leslie Brickus and Henry Mancini from California because we were shooting in London. And they wrote this incredible number. We rehearsed it for three weeks and there it is. It was just this incredible number. And I think even then, I remember saying to Blake, there's a scene in the movie where I go, I'm horny. And I do all this stuff. And I said to Blake, and I feel really shy doing this. And he said, I don't believe you. And I did, but I did it anyway. You know, it's like there was a bigger part of me that just rose above whatever my own feelings were and, you know, embraced what I had to do and what I wanted to do. You got to act out all your antisocial behavior. Well, certainly in that part, I did. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. She didn't care about anything or anybody. And did that feel good? I mean, did it feel good to kind of just let let it all go? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, sure, absolutely. She was fearless. She didn't care. She was manipulative and calculating and ballsy, and she had her own agenda. And she was not going to let anyone stop her, which is great. But I know you were a bit shocked when you saw some of that back for the first time. Yes. I was totally shocked. I cried for about four hours. I thought I would ruin my career because it was unlike anything I'd ever, ever, ever done before. And it was so, it was such an extreme characterization and I couldn't believe what I'd done. And then when I saw it with an audience for the first time at the Schubert Theater in LA, which is no longer here, but it was a very big theater and it was a big premiere here. And the raucous, crazy laughter after my stuff and then the applause after the number, which didn't stop, you know, I thought, okay, I'm wrong, <laughs> you know. And so also obviously talking about Clue and, you know, your role as Miss Scarlet, which initially was, I think, meant to go to Carrie Fisher. Those two roles, Norma and Miss Scarlet, why were they so key for you? Was it because you were portraying these very different dynamic female roles, which, as we know, is something still, unfortunately, of a rarity today? Well, you can never know what's going to catch the zeitgeist ever of a culture. Each of those women, in their own way, were fearless. They walked the beat of their own drum, and they let everyone around them know that. I think it gave people license to maybe, in their imagination, think, yeah, I could be that way. You know what I mean? I don't really know. I can't really honestly describe why these incredible opportunities that I've had have landed so iconically, you know, but they have. And I'm so extraordinarily thrilled. But I mean more for you. Why were they so special for you? Well, first of all, to work with Blake Edwards and Julie, but Blake was just a dream of mine. I'd already seen Breakfast at Tiffany's 11 times, and I'd seen Days of Wine and Roses many times, and, you know, the Pink Panther movies. I was such a gigantic fan. And so to have him choose me to do this movie was a thrill beyond compare. And then every day working with him was a joy. He would fall off his chair laughing at the stuff I did. He just made me feel so beloved. And I spent the first couple of days just peppering him with questions about Audrey Hepburn. (laughs) He said, pay attention to your performance. And Julie was such a generous, loving doll of a human being, just so beautiful and so graceful and elegant and so funny, so down to earth. I mean, just such a wonderful person. So the experience itself was so great doing it. And Separately, in Clue, the cast was so, these were, in my opinion, I've said it before, but these were, these were and are some of the most iconic comedy actors of our time. Mm. 
And so to be in that ensemble was heaven with Madeline Kahn and Martin Mull and Eileen Brennan and Christopher Lloyd, all of them. It was Tim Curry, the genius that he is. It couldn't have been a more exquisite sort of comedic experience. We drove the director crazy because we were just laughing out loud at each other's stuff all the time. We were there doing it for three and a half months. We were together, you know, doing this movie. And then, again, you don't have any clue how it's going to turn out or what the effect is going to be on people. When I think there's such a tremendous... I think the energy, you know, when you're having what you described, which is just the best time really working, that enthusiasm, that energy, that love, that joy, it all gets transmitted, you know, onto whatever that final product is, if it's a TV show or a book or a song or whatever. I mean, I think about also Ali in September, you know, you just, you feel that you feel the energy that was behind the creation process, don't you? Yeah, I mean, I I think, you know, music and movies are different in that there are so many people on a movie set and there are so many personalities. It's not just the joy of creating. You know, it's hard, hard, hard work and it's also exhausting and it's also conflicts arise and people come in cranky. And sometimes it's interesting, they always say this is sort of a showbiz axiom. You know, they say that, you know, sometimes sets that are the most harmonious, don't produce the best product (laughs) and vice versa. Now, in the situation of Victoria, it was completely a joy beginning to end and crew was as well. But I've been on many shoots where it's a lot of conflict and it still is something to be extremely proud of, you know? Absolutely. No, there's never a, it's never like there's a straight rule for it. Right, right, right. But I do think there's something about, you know, the energy being transmitted and sometimes the conflict energy is actually what kind of makes it tense or dynamic or whatever. Absolutely. Right. I agree. So you said in 1991, you'd never played anyone normal. Has that happened yet, Leslie? No. <laughs> I don't get to play the normal mom at home, you know, or the, I don't know, there's no such thing as a normal mom at home, is there? But, you know, the less obviously either distressed or neurotic or piss and vinegar, you know, whatever it is, I don't seem to draw those other kinds of characters to me. I did a movie called The Limey, Steven Soderbergh directing it, and Terrence Stamp and Peter Fonda were in it with me, and the character was relatively, I don't want to say normal, it's such a ridiculous word. I don't know why I ever used it, but she was not as complex, but she was rather depressed. <laughs> so she had her own demons, but they weren't. And did one movie called When Do We Eat, where I was just the mom of this brood, crazy brood, but we were all sort of, no, I've never been asked to do anything like that. <laughs> in answer to your question. And, you know, someone who has just been kind of kicking ass across so many years, how have you remained so, well, sane? You know, what's been your backbone through it all? Well, I wasn't sane for a long, long, long time at all. I was driven and I had many issues to work out for years and years and years and years. And I was a sort of seeker and I tried different things. You know, try different practices. And then I found something that, that spoke to me and worked for me. And I think that that commitment that I wanted to have, that I did have to this spiritual practice was, and it took years, but allowed me to find that place of 
sanity and some peace in my heart and mind that I had never been able to have. I do also think that even through all the tough years, all the difficult, horribly difficult relationships and, you know, all kinds of stuff, there was a part of me that that kept striving to be free. And that part is what carried me through. And that's a lovely way to now move into the sending music into space part of the show. So what what would the music be that you would send into space, Leslie? Imagine, John Lennon's Imagine. For the obvious reasons, I would want whatever's out there to know that we tried. <laughs> we definitely tried. That song represents for me the, the hope of what could be, what should be. Let's take a listen to Imagine by John Lennon and Yoko Ono. You may say I'm a dreamer But I'm not the only one I hope someday you'll join us And the world will live as one And that was Imagined by John Lennon and Yoko Ono and that was the music that Leslie Ann Warren would send into space because, as you said, it's kind of the perfect song to say, we tried. And do you mean that because by this point, humanity will cease to be? Or <laughs> I hope not. You know, I hope not. But if you're asking me about it at this point in my life, I would want whatever is out there to really know that there were those of us that kept trying in the face of, you know, tremendous obstacles. Absolutely. And in the face of tremendous obstacles, like bringing it back to the work that you do, what would be your advice for someone that was starting out? And actually, maybe just your advice to anyone. Is there a sentiment that you wish to communicate? It's a huge, because each soul has its own journey, clearly. And whatever lessons are on each soul's journey are those specific to their evolution. So it's very hard to stand back and watch people make choices that are going to hurt them. But sometimes that's what has to happen in order to get to the next place of where you want to be. So I would simply say, you know, find something that represents a power greater than yourself that you can believe in, whatever that is, whatever that is, so that you have a connection to a higher knowing that you may not be able to enact, but eventually you will. Do you still believe in romance, magic, true love? I do. <laughs> I'm such a romantic. Oh my God, I do. I feel like Ron and I, my husband and I, are we are soulmates, and this is what it was supposed to look like. And we're both incredibly romantic and, you know, had to kiss a ton of frogs before I got here. So it took what it took. But I'm so grateful that we are, you know, we found each other. And do you think we as a human species have lost touch with some of that, that magic, you know, that heart connection? Oh, yeah, I do. But I also think there are many, 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 many of us that haven't. And that's the horrific conflict that's going on right now. There are those who have not lost it. And then there are those who have. And it's just, um, it's a psychic war. You know, it's a real test right now. I agree. I think I may know the answer to this one, but for you, who's made an indelible difference to your life on this planet? You're thinking Ali, of course, right? No, Kermit. Leslie. What? <laughs> but, you know, I can't say one person. I can't. I mean, there have been so many 
people in my life that have tremendous impact on me. And I think I have like a huge heart <laughs> because I have a lot of love for a lot of significant people in my life. So that I can't say one person. I mean, yes, Ali is indelible, absolutely. But so is the director of Cinderella. I can't really say one person. My Ron, my son. No, it's the wonderful disco ball. I often think that we're all on this disco ball together and we all have our own unique angle like each bit of glass has its unique angle and prism but then you know we're all connected we're all part of this whole so I know I definitely hear that I think what's amazing is obviously how we are touched by everything and everyone we encounter yeah that's right and you know I mean obviously my son obviously my husband but then there are so many many people you know that as you said that we encounter that have small or profound impact on our beings. And is there something of your life's work that maybe few people know about but that you're immensely proud of? It was always very important to me as a young young actress to illuminate the human condition of journeys of being a woman and what that entailed, whether it was, you know, all different women from all different facets of life. I somehow felt this enormous responsibility to bring them fully into being and honor their foibles and their challenges and their failures and their successes in a way that people could walk away with empathy and not judgment. I think that's incredible. In some ways, I'm glad we haven't really talked about it, but um, just with the awareness of the industry obviously being, well, (laughs) uh, weighted one way and, you know, all that you've done to honour those, you know, female portrayals, just as you described, I think is hats off to you, Leslie. Oh, thank you. Sadly, now it's the song that, you know, you would have at your memorial. So what would that be? Somewhere, but the original somewhere from West Side Story, the original orchestration, the original arrangement. Yeah. Wonderful. So we're going to take a listen to Somewhere from West Side Story. that was somewhere from West Side Story and that was the song that Leslie Ann Warren would have play at her memorial and why why that particular track Leslie well first of all the music itself is so magnificent and the arrangement is so stirring and so deeply moving and you know just so grand for me but the words the lyrics there's a place for us somewhere the longing for a safe place to be and to love and to feel that love and to just to be surrounded by the safety of that place, whatever that place is, you know, internally speaks to me just deeply. And do you think you found that safe place? Yes, I have. 
I wish there was no Omicron. <laughs> There's a lot I'd like to change. But just in terms of that eternal safe place that, I, that I've talked about in regards to that music and song, yes, I have. And that's the, the love that I have with my husband and my son. It's been attained for me. And also for your pretty radical self. <laughs> well, thanks. And you obviously mentioned spirituality. Has that, does that change your perspective on death? Uh, I try. I don't want to die. I don't want to leave the people I love. I don't want to get old. Er. <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to leave. So I really struggle with that big time. And I have oh, so much grief when someone leaves like Precious Alley. So no, it hasn't really helped all that much. I mean, it's helped some. And I have glimmers of knowing that there's a place for us, somewhere a place for us. I have glimmers of knowing that there's that there's a there there and it will be okay. But I'm also human and attached deeply attached to the people and animals that I love. And so it's a struggle. It's an ongoing work in progress, let me say. I think that's the perfect way to describe it. Life is, it's definitely a work in progress. Um, and I don't think we get even a quarter of the picture while we're, while we're here. Well, I feel like I maybe have more than a quarter, but I certainly don't have the whole picture. It's almost like, just from a perception perspective, I think our, our sensory perceptions are so limited compared to, you know, other dimensions. And so there's, I think there's just a lot that we can't even, being human beings, we just can't even process, you know? Absolutely. I totally agree. I agree. And for your final Orange Juice for the Year choice, Leslie, what is the record that you would like to pass on to your son, Christopher, I know you actually chose a piece of music. What, what is that? Over the Rainbow, Judy Garland's Over the Rainbow, or Jane Monheit, whom I love and love and love. And what, why that particular music? Because I would want him, and he, I believe, knows this anyway, but I would want him to know that feeling of birds fly over the rainbow, why then, oh, why can't I? That you can, you absolutely can. And it's there for you to, to know and to do. And that's what I would want him to have. Is there anything else that you would want to pass on to him? You mean specifically from that song or in general? In general. He knows that I love him with every cell of my being 10,000 times over, 100,000 times over. He knows it. He knows that. So really what I want for him is to know that he's going to be okay. He will be okay. Wonderful. So we're going to end in just a few moments with Over the Rainbow by Judy Garland. But first, Leslie, is there anything that you're excited about that you're working on at the moment? I've been working on a film with a writer-director friend of mine, Bobby Moresco, who is a two-time Academy Award-winning writer for Crash and Million Dollar Baby. And it's a book that I optioned, and we've been working on it a long time, for four years now, maybe more. It's hard to get the money to do anything these days, but we are halfway there. And it's a project that I think is very relevant and powerful and meaningful. And I would love to see that come to fruition. There are things that are in the zeitgeist of my life, you know, that are around that might be happening, but nothing that I'm sort of deeply passionate about and committed to at this moment. But that movie is definitely one of them. Wonderful. And how do you feel in general just about the notion of your legacy? I feel fantastic. 
<laughs> I do. I mean, I know that that sounds probably you're not supposed to say that, but I do. I feel absolutely beyond proud, beyond blessed, ecstatic. You know, I have, nobody's done everything that they want, but I've done a lot of what I wanted to do. I mean, I feel like I've been so, had such unbelievable opportunities that I worked so hard at embodying. And I'm so deeply proud of the legacy, you know, that people shine back at me. And I take the time. I had a girlfriend who's actually passed away, another girlfriend, but um, she used to say all, all the time, she was a professor of photography at a college, and she used to say, you know, it's so important for us to celebrate what we've done. It's so important to acknowledge that to ourselves. And I do. I do that. I do that. I'm very cognizant of my life's work and how proud I am of it. You should be. I really feel something that is quite rare today, you know, is that ability to be a tremendous a tremendous artist across multiple fields or areas or platforms, you know, and when I watch your performances, Norma, that wonderful song and dance, and I'm thinking, wow, you're doing it all. You know, you're singing, you're dancing, you're acting, you're, you look absolutely fantastic. You know, that kind of old school mentality of having all of those skills that are just so honed, which is kind of rare today. Yeah. Yeah. It was how I grew up. It's what I knew. I grew up in that world and I, I wanted to be a part of it and I wanted to be as excellent as I could be at all of it. And so what do you feel is the thread that connects all your orange juice for the year choices? I think they're all emotional. I think they have deep emotion in them, in each choice, you know, the writing, the music, the orchestration of them. And I think they're all truly speak from art place, which is really pretty true of me, I think. And thinking about performance today, what do you think we've gained and what do you think we've lost? I'm grateful that I'm very current in many ways, you know. I don't judge what is today based on what was because, you know, there's a world of artistry out there and there was then too. And one in my mind isn't better than the other so I don't like to compare it on a level of obviously technologically we've gained light years, but and for sure there's a, a loss of innocence based on our the times we're living in versus the times they were being made. But as far as pejoratively better or, you know, in terms of loss or gain, I don't feel that way. And what is it that you hope to leave behind with the work that you're doing and all of the work that you've done already? It's done. <laughs> You know what I mean? I feel like, hey, it's there, you know. I'm not sure what the next, let's say 30, if I'm lucky, years will bring me. I'm not sure. I don't know. You know, I don't know. But a sense of, I mean, because we've talked about hope or we've talked about... um you mentioned honoring the truth of women. Is there a sort of sentiment or essence that you hope your work continues to communicate over time? You know, in the business that I'm in, you know, the roles are not as abundant. You get older, there's far less opportunity for all of us who are in that world and at that time, and all of that's very real. And if and when I get more opportunities, I will always bring that sense of truth and commitment that I talked about earlier in terms of illuminating the human condition for women in whatever I get to do. But I don't know. 
I don't know what's ahead. You know, I really don't. That's okay. As far as what I've left behind, I feel like there's a tremendous amount that I've left behind. I can feel really good and gentle with myself about that. I don't have that overriding anxiety and feeling of desperate longing that I've had for much of my life. I haven't had that, though. I've worked on all of that, and it's been slowly over the last, I don't know, 10 years being eliminated from my being. You know, that thing I said earlier about I always wanted to be free, and that's what kept me moving forward. What I meant by that was freedom from those feelings and thoughts and anxieties that didn't make it any better, just made me miserable. So therefore, now, I have no idea what's ahead, but I don't feel the pain of that that I would have before. I get that. What I was meaning with that question is if your work is transmitting something, which of course it is, what is the essence of that that you hope it's transmitting to people? You know, I think that for me, honestly, my desire and my intention and my gift has always been to move people, to help them to understand or see something that they maybe couldn't identify in themselves or couldn't articulate about a situation or a a feeling that they may have had, or to make them laugh and have a great time. It isn't any one thing in that way. You know, it, it's really about being a conduit for people to experience. And when I studied with Lee Strasberg, that's what he used to talk about a lot, that the actor is a conduit for the audience to access and understand maybe hidden feelings or unexplored feelings or thoughts or behaviors that they weren't able to do on their own. And the actor does that for them so that they can then have an understanding, a deeper understanding of what it might be that they're experiencing. Amen to that. That's my job. Yeah. That's my job, babe. <laughs> well, you're doing a pretty good job of it. <laughs> but that's it, Leslie. Like it's to move people and, you know, that's it. And that's what you do. Thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. And now we're going to end with um, Leslie's last choice, Over the Rainbow, sung by Judy Garland. Perfect way to end this wonderful, magical show. Um, and Leslie, once again, thank you so much for being with us. You're welcome, welcome, welcome. You're so welcome and I love you to pieces. Over the rainbow, way up high, there's a land that I heard of once in a lullaby, somewhere. 